long welcome to episode 282 of the Ram Nintendo Podcast and the start of an E3 month that isn't. I'm Jason. I'm Angel. I'm Kevin. And uh, yeah, the convention and usual hullabaloo around it may be gone and subdued, but dang it, Dune, June is still trying its darndest here. Uh, we've got a hands-on of an upcoming game that's uh, out in one week, but it's still upcoming uh, with Mario Strikers Battle League and the first kick that's taking place this weekend, hence the Just for Kicks title of today's show. We've got some Pokemon news, specifically a second trailer and details for Scarlet and Violet. And we've got some general industry activity, I guess you could call it, with Summer Game Fest coming up this week and news already out in tandem with that, like the first footage of Sonic Frontiers, which is, uh, it, it's something, it's something. Um, and what would be an E3 without Reggie? He's out of the picture for, at Nintendo, but uh, he was synonymous with this time of year for like 14 years. And I finally got the chance to read his book, so I wanted to give some thoughts on that a little later in the show. So we have that too. Uh, Timestamps for everything, though, are, as always, at Ramtown.com on the episode 282 blog post for those who wish to jump between topics. But I do strongly encourage you to stick around until the end of the episode because we also have an announcement of our own about the future of Random Nintendo as we know it. So while that ominous cloud that I promise isn't as scary as it sounds looms over everyone, how are you two doing? I'm doing fine. Hoping to actually relax this weekend, actually stay in and not really go out too much. Too much activity last weekend. California Adventure is still great. I recommend it. I hadn't been there since actually... Last time I went there, a Bugs Land was still the thing. So oh, going wow. there now and yeah. well yeah, since like we had the annual pass with that was you. like twenty fifteen, sixteen, somewhere in there. Yeah. That long ago? No, maybe it we was had 17. the pass like in seventeen, eighteen? Yeah, maybe. Like what is time anymore? You know? I I but, Yeah, that that <laughs> But that Spider Man that they slingshot, you know, the the attraction of that part. Um uh, I've seen what it's supposed to look like on the internet, as I'm sure many of you have. But for those that don't know what I'm talking about in the Avengers campus, I believe that's where a bug's land used to be or somewhere yes, around there. Correct. Um, there's like a little building. Some, uh, I won't break the magic plane. Spider-Man is there and he's like talking to the audience and <laughs> you hear Tom Holland's voice loud and clear. Okay. I was about to and ask then, if it was Tom Holland or not. It is. Yeah. <laughs> and, and then he proceeds to do parkour, but it looks more like yep. parkour. It is more like he's just rolling on top of crates. Like, he doesn't really do any crazy jumps or flips. He just, like, rolls over crates. And, like, there's, like, maybe one or two cool things where he, like, jumps off a wall and does, like, a little flip. But for the most part, it just looks like if you and I were trying to do, quote-unquote, parkour and just, like, jumped on a crate and rolled over it and then landed on the other side. To be and then at fair, some point, to be fair, because I, I saw I was at the Avengers to campus. To be fair, that's but, actually Tom Holland, and and that's really <laughs> rude of you. So much. <laughs> no, I was to say, to be fair, like it's a little better than if we did. Like I saw it. Um, I was at the Avengers campus actually opening day, so I know what you're talking about. But um, yeah, it it's not great, but it's not quite like if I did it, it'd be way worse. Like let's be honest. <laughs> but yeah, it's not great. P- point yeah. is, like it, it's something like I wouldn't say it's horrible, but. You know, like, when you're going to a theme park and they're going to do, like, you see all these boxes, I'm like, oh, he's going to, like, jump off, like, the one of the boxes and do, like, at least a flip and land down. But that not even that happened. It was just a bunch of rolling on top of the boxes. Are, are you just going to gloss right over the actual point of the little display? Which yeah, I was getting there. Okay. And then at some point, um, not Jarvis um, talks to Peter and they're like, hey, we should do a, a height test or something. 
and they're like, okay, oh, altitude test. They're like, okay, let me get in position. And then they do kind of a little countdown. And then you see, like, at least, like, this is, this is exactly what I saw that day. And they look more funny than anything. But it basically looked like someone grabbed the Spider-Man action figure and just flung it through the air. And it was just kind of, like, flailing about on the side like a flopping fish. Wait, and it didn't go it correctly? Kinda, no, I didn't even, like, go up that high. And then, like, my sister was like, oh, yeah, that they, it definitely went wrong. And yeah, it was just more funny than anything. Cause oh, it literally so looked like <laughs> it's actually great. Value. It looked it, it it looked like a corpse, <laughs> like like a rag doll. It was just like it didn't look like the way I thought in the videos. Because some of those like looked really really cool. Like it almost looked like an actual person. But yeah, no, it was just more like uh, I don't know, look like Spider Man got tased and then flung in the air. Because <laughs> yeah, when it works, he does like a full flip <laughs> and he like kind of glides through the air and it looks really cool. But yeah, it uh. Yeah, they. I, I'm surprised they still haven't like mastered it, so to speak. Because I remember when I went, like there were times that it would launch and it'd count down to the launch, and it just wouldn't launch. So you'd be like, "Here I go," and then there'd just be an empty sky. You're like, "Where? Where'd he go?" Really? Yeah, that's surprising. Because like I know, I mean, when I heard that this was being a thing and it was basically almost operational, um, someone had pointed out that there were some videos that were a few years old of them actually like showing the making of it. And during their, like, trial runs and stuff, it looks like, oh, wow, they actually got it down. So, yeah, it is kind of surprising that... Well, I mean, it's, you know, it's like... They haven't mastered it, given... It's like anything. They yeah. break down. You know, the rides uh, still break down. In, like, in a the ride they've mastered since the 90s, like, Space Mountain still breaks down from time to time. It just it happens. Yeah. It's mechanical. Yeah. I mean, yeah. and when it down. works, it works really well. So, yeah. I break down so. every now and then, you know, just, like... And you're not <laughs> even mechanical. Exactly. So, yeah. But speaking of, how are you doing, Kevin? I don't think you saw Floppy Fish uh, Spider-Man, did you? No, I did not. Unfortunate. Uh, question about that that Floppy Spider-Man. How many of those do they have? Is it just one that they have to move from one side to the other? It might be. I'm guessing it probably is just one. I'm sure they have at least two. Yeah, they might have like but... a, a, the one they could swap in. But yeah, because it, when it's done doing its thing, it like leaves and then there's like a 20 minute gap and then they start again or a 30 minute gap and then they start again so there's definitely time for them to like move it the 15 not 15 to like 50 feet back to where it started yeah yeah oh, weird but when I it goes it's really weird. cool it's cool when it goes you can actually see it over the tree line from other parts of california adventure when it launches correctly which is kind of neat because you're just like you just look around and suddenly spider-man like flies by off in the distance but yeah yeah i've never been to a california adventure i haven't been to disneyland in like 13 years no way longer than 13 years at this point i haven't been to disneyland 17 or 18 years wow yeah yeah it's not not high on your list of priorities it sounds like no not really well star wars land is cool avengers campus spider-man i know no but i mean like just as a park it's it's cool um it's the most themed thing they have uh, Jason's like, shut up, it's cool. It's cool, I'm telling you. Uh, no, but like the ride, the rides are, one of them's okay, Smuggler's Run. Runs no, I, I understand what resistance, But yeah. Um, and the Avengers Campus is fine, but the Spider-Man thing's kind of neat. Um, yeah, you might not be missing as much, now that I think about it. <laughs> but, yeah. You know, when when I go, I'll go. It's It'll be a while until I the go. The big thing is Super Nintendo World and going to that. It's now dated for early 2023 here in LA, so. Be long yeah. dead by then. Oh, wow. That got dark. Okay. <laughs> well, hopefully the other things we talk about this episode um, you'll be alive for because they're all happening a lot soon. They're all happening this year in 2022. Um, 
starting with one happening next week, actually, which is Mario Strikers Battle League. For uh, we played the first kick, but Mario Strikers Battle League, and that's it's it's as close as we can get to that old E3 feeling, um, where you know we have hands-on impressions of an unreleased game. Uh, so yeah, this this weekend marks this exclusive. online mode trial no, period. What was that, Angel? Might have said exclusive, but I guess it isn't. I mean, our impressions are exclusive are exclusive to us because they came from our brains, in a way, kind of. But anyway, yeah. Um, online trial is this weekend. Nintendo's dubbed it the first kick. Angel, I know you tried it. Kevin, did you try it? No, I did. I didn't have uh, the chance to. Totally I was fine then. Forward to it. Yeah, it's it's still going for the rest of the weekend. So we're recording this on Saturday oh, nice. morning, which means you have a couple more goes. Um, I think then I think there's one at noon and eight p.m. Pacific today, and then tomorrow at like one a.m. and noon again. So if anyone happens to listen to this between like when it goes live at like two a.m. and uh, when we announce it on our Twitter at noon on Sunday, like if you're in that window where you're ahead of our tweet, you could play it still. So go do that. But anyway, uh, I guess in that case, it's between uh, Angel and me. Uh, we actually kind of took two different paths in our play choices because I played solo. Like, I just hopped online and rolled with what the demo gave me. But Angel, you you were playing with, like, real-life friends, right? Like, you had actual teammates you, you knew, right? I did. So how was that yeah. experience for you? Because I feel like we had different experiences because of how we played, honestly. Um, you know, it may, I don't think this is a, a fault to the game. If anything, it's just more of like a. It made me forget that. I think I definitely prefer to play alone. It it was weird because we <laughs> you, had. You won't once I tell my impressions. <laughs> um, because we had three people. It, it's kind of like a. It's a weird. I feel like we need to have a full team of mm, people, mm-hmm. or I'd rather be alone. Mm-hmm. Because you're gonna have a squad of four people in your team, no matter what. So. I don't know if I guess it is five in another mode, or maybe I just misremembered and it was never five. It's not five, but at least in this one. Oh wait, maybe it is. But, take that back. Sorry. Well, that was announced somewhere, but you know what we played was this four v fours, and you know we played against people that it was this team of one and it was our team of three, and the part that got kind of annoying was, and this is, it is you know, it's just something I could potentially just get used to, and that's just how it is, but. I didn't really like that half the time when there was a character I wanted to control, sometimes one of my teammates would like, you know, go to that character first and then I'm just kind of stuck in the back, not really doing yes. anything. Agreed. So it's kind of, so it's like a battle of like control over characters. Now this would be remedied if we had a full team of people, because like another part that gets kind of annoying with that is sometimes like there's a play I want to do. Like, oh, okay, cool, I'm going to pass it to center and then score. And then I pass it to center, but then it's one of the other teammates that happens to, like, jump to that character first, and then they don't score, they just pass or something else. And it's like, damn, missed opportunity. So, yeah, that's kind of that. But if we had a full team of people, I'm usually much better with that, because then, you know, it's just like, you're just focused on the one character. When you're passing it to someone, you know exactly who you're passing it to, and it just makes it way easier to coordinate. And yeah, I can't really imagine how much rougher it would be with just two people because it's almost random whether you're going to get to control a character or not. Uh-huh. <laughs> but, that was my, yep, yep. Yeah, but you know, obviously, something that could be remedied if you're playing in person with someone else because then, you know, you could communicate a lot better. But even then, like, as you're running around, like, position changes a lot and who's controlling who is also going to swap around quickly. That 
Yeah, I feel like I'd rather go solo so that I could have full control of the team and know that I'm always going to be making every choice or have it a full team so that, you know, we can just coordinate better and not worry about who's who at any given point. But yeah, other than that, it was really fun. I loved it. But yeah. Yeah, our uh, us us loners that played by ourselves online also. Here's where things get kind of weird. We also had to play on teams of two versus two, which I have to imagine was Nintendo wanting to better you know stress test their latency and lag or whatever. And and to be fair, outside of um like the team captain assignment screen having a weird like full on one second long lag just to select who's team captain. Besides that, I did have a pretty lag free experience. But but yeah, man, they introducing new players to the systems of Mario Strikers through a forced 2v2 with a stranger where you have zero chance of communication. You can't, like, get on Discord or something. Like, that was a mistake on Nintendo's Wait, part. Wait, wasn't... You weren't able to communicate with them through the Nintendo app? Because as soon as I started playing, I got a notification on my phone that said, I don't, you can use your app to talk. I don't think so, and if so, I'm shocked Nintendo let people do random voice chat one-on-one with a stranger. That doesn't sound like Nintendo. Maybe it was because I picked uh, play with friends. I think so, of, but but even yeah. if like even um, so okay, let's say that's the case. I I didn't talk. Let's say that wasn't option. I didn't talk to them. But even then, to basically Nintendo be like, hey, you gotta do two on two, and you gotta do it with this random guy, and you gotta talk to him online. It just like, even, like I don't know, it was weird. And even if you're a player like me who did all the tutorials, it felt weird. Like I knew the systems. But it's just, I don't know, like, no matter which way you want to look at it, it was weird. Like, let's go with the perspective of the tutorial first, right? So the tutorial was 1v1, where you control everyone on the team. So, you know, you have full reign over your team. You learn the ins and outs of all these neat systems, like perfect passing and whatnot, that, you know, essentially let you speed up the momentum of the ball between your players for better shots. And there's always, like, deeper strategies you can do. And then they throw you online into a match where you can't, seemingly coordinate your passing you can't necessarily signal who's going to go for an ionbach or who would be best to pass it to at any one given moment or really anything like that which you know to be fair this is a plight of any team-based online game you play solo like it's it's you know it's if you don't want to use online chat or if it's not an option you're always gonna run into these issues but it's weird that this is the supposed like best foot forward mario strikers chose even though it is not a unique problem. Um, the added issue for me, though, is that you're basically doing what you just said. You're swapping between characters on the field, but you and your teammate each choose two characters up front, and then when you enter the match, you're able to either manually or automatically switch between all the characters on your combined team. Yeah, I was kind of hoping you would just stick with the ones you Yeah, it didn't make time. sense. Like, I thought that's, yeah. Like, both players characters are accessible to both players is a really weird choice when you don't know the other guy and you can't voice chat with him even you know let's say you can during the match you can't before the match so like how he's picking characters you may not know how to use like it doesn't i mean granted they're kind of the same but you know what i mean like you literally may have your character in control or your teammate may take him out from under you and then you're stuck using one of theirs wherever they may be on the field and that Okay, maybe that in of itself isn't necessarily the end of the world. Like, all right, you could, they, they control roughly similar enough. And you can set it to auto. So by default, it's manual, but you can set it to auto, so it will just automatically assign you to the character nearest the ball at any one time. So, sure, that maybe that sidesteps that. But then that highlights a different, arguably more frustrating problem that I had, and I saw online that this was a common complaint because I want to make sure I wasn't crazy. But um, the player indicators are just not good. 
Essentially, everyone on your team always has a number above their head that corresponds to what their yeah, player Yeah, that does not help at all. <laughs> yep, and it corresponds to what their player number would be if they were playing a local multiplayer game, which, okay, sure. And then everyone on the other team also has a number above their head. And those who we are on do the... not need to see what their numbers exactly. are. Exactly, <laughs> and those who are on the same team have numbers in the same color. So you've got two characters with very similar indicators atop their heads, and then two other characters with random other indicators atop, atop you know, their head. And I, I, I can't help but wonder, like, what is the point? Like, if I'm playing solo, what I need is a big signifier of who I am. If I'm playing with a friend, go ahead and put a much smaller indicator, maybe in a unique color, so I can see maybe who they are versus an AI teammate. But why are their indicators muddying up the glanceability, like the entire point of icons at all, for every single character on the field? Like, I don't get it. It was so confusing. And on top of that, you know, if I'm doing 2v2 with two icons on my team that are the same color, same font, same size, just slightly different, like, numerical symbols, like, and, and, and you're telling me that I can play as not just the two characters I selected, but also step into the two characters of my teammate that he or she randomly selected, and that they can do that with mine, it gets really confusing really fast of who's who. Because you're not even like, oh, I'll just look out for Waluigi. It's like, wait, oh, I guess I need to keep an eye on if I'm Rosalina now. Like, what? And, you know, especially in a game that thrives on the chaos of, like, tackling and items flying and electric fences, electrocuting and whatever. Like, all that's happening at once. And it's just visually very cluttered and hard to kind of distinguish. Even when turning on this option I found in the game's menu called Visual Assist which turns the little icons about the players into like diamonds and circles and stuff, but are still the same color and still all designed the same and still on top of every player. Um, and more to the point, like why am I playing, and this is something you said, Angel, but why are we playing as characters we didn't choose? Like it seems like you could alleviate at least part of this problem if the two characters you choose are the only two you can switch between, just like your teammate would only be able to play their two, and then you just have to ping pong between two instead of four. Like, I don't know. That's why I'm saying 2v2 to me was a mistake when you're coming into it from 1v1 or 4v4, because, like, either way, it doesn't make sense. Like, either you're controlling too many characters or too few characters, depending on you look at it. Because even with 4v4, even with the current, like, player indicator system, you're always just going to be on your selected ca character, which is kind of what you were saying, Angel. Or, like, in 1v1, there just needs to be one rotating player icon for the whole team, because it's just you controlling the team. It's it's just 2v2 that really muddies it all up and feels like kind of the lesser of both options. So it was really weird that that was how Nintendo decided to, like, present the game publicly for the first time. And, I don't know, it's just kind of, I guess, a bummer that the game starts with leaving the source sour taste because, honestly, like, gameplay mechanic-wise, there's a lot here. Like, you know, you're saying, it's, it, after you got over your hump of, like, I don't know why it was set up this way, it's fun, and that's how exactly Yeah, Koroshu aside, like, the presentation is super awesome. Like, yeah. All the characters animate amazingly well. Mm -hmm. I don't know why Rosalina, Rosalina swims through the air, but, you know, so it looks cool. Because she's an extraterrestrial being, and she doesn't adhere to the laws of gravity, clearly. Yeah, but, yeah, it was all really cool. I love the idea of two stadiums smashing into each other. So yeah. It's kind of cool when you and your opponent pick the same one, so you just have a full stadium. Yeah, it's, right. it's and, and, like, even, like, in terms of mechanics, like, there's a lot. Like, may maybe maybe almost too much, but no, like, next level games really, like, they really did try to develop multiple layers of strategy here. Like, it's not super surface level it didn't feel like. Like, going through the tutorial, there's for sure a strong foundation to give this game some legs. I mean, the tutorial takes, like, 30 minutes to get through. There's that much stuff to do. And we, you know, we already, I already mentioned the passing mechanic as it's kind of like the perfect pass system to speed up your ball movement and stuff, but there's also, like, this big push I noticed towards, like, I guess more intent 
in your actions, you could say. Like, I noticed it most was with tackling. Like, the last strikers I played was on GameCube. Maybe charged it differently, but I remember on GameCube, like, um, you hit the button and you instantly slam into someone, right? Like, you just, it's just tackle and go. It's like, you can button mash it. Here, there's a bit of a small delay when you hit tackle, but you're actually rewarded for delaying it even more for a kind of playing where you want to tackle, uh, like where you want the tackle to be, not where you currently are. So if you, you know, charge your tackle and aim it with the cursor that appears under your character, it actually becomes significantly more powerful and becomes like a crucial move. And then there's also this other tackle you can do for your teammate called team tackle where you actually can shove them forward as a boost, which obviously also requires a little pre-planning. So it kind of feels like they're trying to make this a little more like of a thinking man's <laughs> crazy, ridiculous, over-the-top soccer game. Um, and the other system intent of intent that kind of caught my eyes, this one's a holdover from past games, but the hyper strike, right? Like they're essentially using the same time-based meter as the captain shots and charged, um, which requires you to sort of find a good spot to be able to do this extra elaborate shooting process. But now it's essentially accessible to any character at any time. I mean, how do you feel about like the hyper shot and the new tackles and stuff, Angel? I like the new tackles and dodges. Like they felt like they added a nice amount of depth. Compared to like the last game, not that there was something wrong with the last game. This is just different and yeah, so it like, works really well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, like the, I mean, just in general, like play, it just feels like, I mean, obviously, you only got to play for an hour and only did the tutorial, so I feel like I barely scratched the surface. But the, I feel like there's a lot of meat there. But for the hyper shots, though, I mean, it's cool that they look too. I kind of don't like that you can only use them if whoever, whichever team grabs the electric ball first. Like it's a little smash ball like in terms of the chaos it yeah. yeah but that being said like if you're planning well enough you could easily stop your opponent so it kind of comes down to like strategy and planning right there but that's the only part that i'm like oh, i guess kind of wish i was different but i did feel like each team grabbed it an equal number of times it didn't really feel thankfully it never felt like like oh i got placed in a like in a very annoying spot even if something does spawn right next to someone and they get it Sometimes I feel like it's being done for like a comeback mechanic, but mm-hmm. and even then I still don't really feel like I completely understand how those work because I was able to like you know they shoot the ball really hard after their cool animation, they block it, but then you have to like mash A to fill up this meter, and you know I filled it up completely one time, they defended it, another time I completely filled it up and it still went in anyway. And then another time, one of my opponents didn't even fill it up halfway, and they still put brushed it off, so... It's also yeah, unclear who's it. filling the meter. Like, is it a meter that's only relevant to you that you see and you need to fill it all the way? Does every player's A button pressing on the it team It looks like only combine? one of the teammates has... It looks like, like only the, one of the people being scored on has to mash A, because I was trying mashing A and nothing happened. Oh, interesting. But, but it doesn't symbol. It doesn't, well, again, bad No, it, it doesn't tell you who it's supposed to be. Yeah, You're just, someone's just supposed to realize it. Which yeah. is kind of, and you know what's nice about all the weird player indicator stuff like that and the and on the field is like, they could fix that with a patch. Like, it's not going to hold the game back long term. It's just like a short term issue. But yeah, that, that, that was confusing for me too. And I, I, I did a tour like a week ago and then I did a full hour of the first kick. And yeah, in that full hour, I could not figure out the, the ins and outs of why the hyper shot or strike sometimes works and sometimes doesn't. I just thought as long as the mirror was full, but yeah, I, it got it duped me too at least once. But poor I poor little Jason. I know poor little Jason. But I do I do honestly think that these layers of strategies are what are going to separate Mario Strikers from say like a Switch Sports or something. Because what's funny is like if you look at the games on paper, 
they are practically identical in structure and in being built around like kind of subtly pushing a Switch Online subscription. Like both mainly focus on online play with a local player mode on the side if you want it, but no like real single player or anything. The gameplay loop of both is essentially the same. You're just trying to unlock new gear for your character. Uh, and with Switch Sports, you know, the variety comes in and it's a few different sports that require some strategy, but, you know, you're doing it solo. Even the two-player volleyball, like, you're alternating who does what. It's not like you're working together. But Strikers, obviously, there's more immediate team play, a la Rocket League or Splatoon or whatever, and that obviously introduces its own set of strategies. But then they're also introducing this whole second layer to the gameplay loop uh, with the Strikers Club thing, which, you know, you're talking about how the stadiums match together. And that's what's kind of cool, because so when you do the Strikers Club, how it works is you join a team of up to 20 other people, and collectively, you work to earn points for your team every game across a season. And um, these points determine the difficulty tier or the cup you'll compete in in the next season. But along the way, as you do this, you earn unlockables for your stand. The points also go towards your team being able to unlock certain stuff. And when you unlock that stuff, you can add those unique elements to your stand. So when you do play in stadium club mode or strikers club mode against other teams, the mashing of the two stands aren't just the five base stadiums that come with the game, which, by the way, is kind of a small number. But um, it's not just that. It's like your custom stadium versus the other club's custom stadiums. It actually kind of feel like you're building your own little franchise team of Mario Striker people. So that that's kind of a cool, like, it's not just your own personal gear. It's like collectively your team progress, I guess. Like, it seems like just a deeper approach to the exact same gameplay loop because, um, you know, along with buying your own gear improvement, your club can collectively set out to do certain things or reach a certain tier of skill or, or whatever. And Nintendo's already promised, you know, they're going to support the game post-launch with new content, which has to include not just gear, but I've got to imagine, you know, new stadium components, and there's going to be new characters, of course. Data Miner's already found 10 unreleased characters in the source code, or at least 10 slots for characters. So, like, there's a little more here, although it is still very multiplayer first, so it really will come down to just how good these strategies are and how much sense stuff like Hyper Strikes end up making in the long term. Um... Like, who knows how it'll pan out, honestly, or or if it'll be enough on its own. But basically, my, my perspective at this point after playing First Kick is this. If, if they can fix the player indicator, as long as they never force me to exclusively play 2v2 again with strangers, I think there's some fun to be had here, and being part of a club where you can collectively build your stand seems like a really cool concept. Are the gameplay systems deep enough to, like, carry the game long-term like a Rocket League? Are we looking at the... You know, unlockable loop being the only thing to keep someone motivated, all the Switch Sports, even though it does have two tiers of unlockables. I feel like for me that's too early to tell, and it's going to remain too early even when playing the final game next weekend. But in a few months' time, maybe we'll have a better idea. I mean, where, after you've absorbed a little of the demo, I know you only did like 30 minutes of actual online intro, but where do you stand right now? Are you going to buy the game? Is it a wait and see? What's kind of your take? No, definitely going to buy it. I mean, I have. Like some people that we used to play a lot of Mario Strikers Charged back in the day, so it's pretty much a a new thing to do regularly with them. So yeah, nice. Looking forward to that. And Kevin, I know you didn't try the demo, but where are you standing? Are you planning to pick it up? Time will tell. Time will tell. Fair. Um, was there anything else, Angel? You wanted to touch on with Mario Strikers? Um, no, that's pretty much it. I think I said my piece, and I will stand by it. Okay, that was very, like, really, like, period at the end of the sentence there. Okay, um, well, I guess to move us along, uh, when Nintendo wasn't hosting soccer matches, soccer cage matches, I guess you could call them, 
uh, they, or really the Pokemon Company, were giving us a second look at the upcoming Pokemon Scarlet and Violet. Uh, this past week, they released a roughly three-minute trailer that does, I think, what every late May, early June Pokemon news dump does. It gave us a firm release date, November 18th. Uh, no surprise there. It showed us the legendaries, one of which has a jet engine for a butt, and it teases just enough... In- Making it the second one, I guess, with a jet engine for a butt. Who's the first? Zekrom. Oh. Think of him. Yeah. Anyway, or the Reshiram. Right. Well, one of them has right. like a turbine, and the other one has like an engine. Sure. Well, this guy has. T- this guy technically has two little engines. Oh, there you go. So he has like okay. two little like engine butt cheeks. So I don't know if the other guys just well, have then, one engine. This guy had like two. Well, he has one giant one, but I guess you mm-hmm. could. I guess there's also that ghost dragon that has like two little engines in its face. Well, that's not a butt. That's a face. But okay. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> and uh, engines but, on Pokemon is nothing new. Yeah. True. True. But yeah, so they, um, you know, they did the, first, the release date, they did the legendaries, and they teased just enough information in the trailer to, I feel like, raise more questions than answers. So, um, have you guys seen the trailer? What'd you think? I did, and it's kind of funny you say it raises more questions than answers, because I feel like I had no questions and, unfortunately, felt nothing. I, I don't know, I'm kind <laughs> of were bummed. numb to the trailer. <laughs> yeah, I don't know, because I... I thought going on a Pokemon hiatus, because, like, I, and I don't know, I mean, I, mean yeah, I wrote, like, an article on, like, Pokemon competitive battling and whatnot. Mm-hmm. I, I think it was, I think that was still X and Y. I don't think that was Sun and Moon, or maybe it was, but basically Sun and Moon was the last Pokemon I got really, really into, played it a ton, and then I just needed a break, so I didn't get whatever generations came after. Until Shining Diamond, which I got for nostalgic purposes. Right. And even that, I haven't even gone to pass like the third gym. I mean, albeit I'm playing it in Japanese, so it's really slow and hard. But still, though, like, I thought like seeing this trailer would make me go like, oh, man, I'm going to get back into Pokemon. Because I didn't play so- Shield and Sword. I thought about getting it at times, but something always kept like, always just keeping me from getting it, be it time or just general interest. Mm-hmm. And there's also no chat house in there, so yet whatever. you don't even, know for sure. DLC, it might be in the same in the oh oh sorry, Shield. Shield. sorry. I thought you were talking about um, Scarlet and Violet. I'm like, you can't say. Crap. Yeah, and then this one, like, even though I recognize maybe that like some of the newer stuff is in there, but I don't know. It's like after watching it, it's just like, yeah, I don't know if I'm even gonna get it. I think it's just gonna stay as a see and wait, and knowing myself, see and wait is gonna turn into another skip generation. I mean, so unless, like, Chattock gets an evolution or something, then I'm probably not going to bother. And, I mean, I guess in Diamond and Pearl, I already have, like, three Chattocks in there. That's actually <laughs> literally what my team is made out of, and they're, like, three level 100 Chattocks, which is also why I'm struggling with the game, because I can barely make it anywhere since they don't listen. But Yeah, because you you're not playing it right. But uh, I, I do kind of get where you're coming from, because if you're in it for battles and stuff, nothing in that trailer is like, check out this new battle mechanic. It's just like the other stuff that you have true. said you don't care as much about. The battle mechanic. The only thing they say about battles, basically, is it's back to how it was in normal Pokemon. Like, you can still sneak up on Pokemon like in Legends, but there's no catching them in the wild. You're still, it looks like jumping into a turn-based battle every single time. And it doesn't look like that has evolved, haha. Um very far at least not that they've revealed yet so maybe that's part of why because like all the stuff they're focusing on was like not the battle <laughs> like co-op and new pokemon and like the gym's looking different and there's now two professors like it was all like other stuff you know 
Where where do you stand on it, Kyle? Other stuff. How do you feel about the trailer? Uh, it looks like looks like Pokemon. One sure thing that I that I do have a gripe on. Mm-hmm. The logos, horrible. They they're not the same for both games. In what sense? Oh, like the font. Yeah, the font. Yeah, yeah. Disgusting. Get that out of here. <laughs> also, uniformity, I don't know. Please, consistency. They do Jesus have some uniformity. Christ, how hard is it? They do have some uniformity in the wrong way. So on the game boxes, which I like that they're doing like weird little like they look like kind of old books with like little the little gold borders. But um, they put the logo on top of like a semi-translucent black box that just has a random border around it. Like I could do better in Photoshop in like five minutes. Like why why is that how it looks? It's so bizarre. It's so like low rent looking. I don't know. I mean, it says low rent. I guess is uh, Pokemon. Was it Sword or Shield that the logo had to be off center on only one of their boxes because the ESRB logo got in the way? I think it might have been Sword. Like if you look at Sword and Shield, Shield is centered, and Sword is like twenty pixels to the right, and it's madness. So this isn't their first rodeo with messing up logos, is what I'm saying. Yeah, it's disgusting, especially the Scarlet logo. Oh, the Scarlet logo is so hideous. Which is unfortunate because I feel like I like the Scarlet Legendary more, and I'm leaning towards getting that version, especially because it's like you know kind of closest to Pokemon Red, which was my first Pokemon. But yeah, the logo's not. Violet looks the font looks a little cleaner. Yeah, Scarlet's all like curly and weird. But um, but besides that, it's just straight straight up Pokemon to you. Yeah. Just looks like Pokemon to me. It does. It does. I think the thing in the trailer that most sort of jumped out to me is that it features proper co-op for the first time, in which you can actually like meet up with friends and venture out together. Um, and and that's like, where is that I, confirmed is that actually what you're doing? You are d- d- sort of. So um, the trailer did raise more questions than answers. When I said you know there's more questions than answers, I meant mostly co-op. So we don't know exactly how the co-op will work. Like the wording is such that it may be limited to certain areas. Uh, the press release specifically says you can explore with friends in, uh, what's the direct quote here, um, various locations of the region in these games. So that may mean not in gyms or towns, but that may also mean only special like wild area style spots designated as like co-op friendly. Maybe they bring back the Safari Zone name or something. Um, we also don't fully know if it will be online or not. Like some translations out of the Japanese marketing material seem to suggest yes. But in all the official English language stuff, it's a little peculiar that nothing is specified on that front one way or another, which usually means it's not. Um, but let's be honest, like even if it's online, and even if it is, you can go out and venture with friends. Like I couldn't tell you with certainty that I'd ever play it. Like I don't think I can imagine us three Pokemoning together, especially if one of us isn't buying it. Like, but but um maybe one of our other game groups, like Angel, we have the guys we play Minecraft Dungeons and Rogue Heroes with. Maybe they would want to go on like little Pokemon adventures. I don't know. But even then, my point is, it brings up another question. What are you doing in co-op? Are you all exploring an open area? And if a friend like jumps into a battle, can you join them mid-battle and do like a two-on-two or two-on-one against another trainer or wild Pokemon? Like That would be cool and I think kind of the idea, right? Like the ideal scenario. But maybe it's more of like a baby step evolution of the wild area in, in Sword and Shield. So, you know, there you could see other trainers mill about, but at most only battle certain Pokemon in essentially preset spots with the Dynamax thing. So maybe your co-op buddy can at most drop items for you to pick up at random outside of those preset spots, but are you able to, like, 
watch them battle normal Pokemon from afar? Are you able to even like see them battle, or is it just gonna be like this weird animation of your buddy fighting seemingly nothing while you run by to like find your own battles to have? I I don't know. Like I feel like any other franchise, if they say co-op, it would imply the full experience now cooperative. But Pokemon's its own beast that moves at its own pace. And I have no idea how to interpret co-op, and it's weird that like they could go, we have co-op, and it's just collectively like, what, what does that mean? Like the fact we're even you know discussing an a poke an open world Pokemon game with co-op play and trainers you can customize to the lengths you now can. Like this is the stuff that fans in the early 2000s kind of dreamed of as like a Pokemon MMO, and we're finally now starting to see the pieces come come together. Which is great. Like it's ironic it's happened in two Pokemon releases within a single year, following two decades of ignoring all these requests. But it was it was definitely you know they've taken baby steps to get here, and that makes me wonder: is this next step also baby stuff? Because you know, like the Safari Zone to the Wild Area to Open World trainer customization, starting with like a few presets in the early games to some light clothing options to what we now have in Legends, and now there's this idea of having like real trainers working together. You know, initially in a limited capacity in Sword and Shield to whatever it now is in Scarlet and Violet. And I, I don't know what that is. I mean, Game Freak, like, they do these baby stuff with every aspect of the games. Like, even the music. I don't know if you guys remember um, the dude who created Undertale, Toby Fox. He made a Battle Tower theme for Sword and Shield. And I was like, oh, well, a cool little one-off. Just just the one track, but sure. Now, for Scarlet and Violet, he mentioned on Twitter that he's actually been working deeper on the game with more integrated music, including some field music that's actually in... The trailer, it's part, it's been turned into multiple arrangements like Game Freak. It's like one of the, the songs that's throughout the game. So even with something like music outsourcing, like Game Freak dips like one toe first to see if the water's fine, so to speak. So I kind of, I kind of will expect, um, Game Freak to like tiptoe into whatever this co-op is and give us not quite what we want or not quite what we'd expect. But whatever they do, it was nice to see the word co-op pop up and to see them at least broach the idea beyond you know, preset events that are basically Pokemon Go rate. So, and credit where it's due, like, Game Freak has become much better about actually moving the series forward in directions that many fans want in the last couple of years and the last generation or two than they've done for the bulk of Pokemon's existence. So, whatever co-op is, it's nice it's happening. I just have this concern it's not going to be much and hope it's actually going to be more than I think it is, if that makes sense. Um, but yeah, it's one of two things um, that after the trailer... After the trailer's released, there are like two thoughts I had that I feel like Game Freak deserves credit for. One is they're finally listening to fans. And the other is no matter what you may think of the direction of Pokemon designs as a whole or the Pokemon styles, like Game Freak has become exceptionally good at creating new Pokemon that instantly resonate with fans. Like every single one of these trailers, going back to maybe Sun and Moon with Alone Executor, like a Pokemon is announced that gains a fan art following in like an hour. Every one of these trailers is a Pokemon that just hits and becomes meme material on the spot. Every time. With the first Scarlet and Violet trailer, it was Quaxley the duck. This time around, it's Lechonk the pig. I, it's it's yeah, interesting. Like, yeah. What were you guys Angel? Oh, yeah. Like, there's all, <clears throat> yeah, basically, like Jason said, there's always a Pokemon that people want to... What do they say? Like, I will protect it with my life. Yeah. There's always yeah. a Pokemon like that. Yeah. Protect at all yeah, costs. Yeah. Yeah, I, I, and I feel like it's interesting because I feel like it's somewhat of a chicken and the egg thing, right? Like, Pokemon needs certain designs and names that are going to hit in the right way to excite fans enough to, like, memeify them like that. But it needs the groundswell of fans from the resurgence these past few years to have enough eyeballs from the right type of people to make these memes and then have these memes be shared. So it's like, it's kind of like a two-way street. 
Um, and if I may hop on my soapbox for a second here before like we actually talk about these new Pokemon, um, I well, too late. I'm already on it. I was gonna say I think where um, Game Freak has kind of been able to set the precedent is by really recognizing the audience and demographic as being a web savvy one of a certain age. Like one thing I, Mister Guy Who Loves Puns, has all have always liked about Pokemon is the wordplay of the names. And it's been interesting to kind of chart how they've changed, you know? Like, back in the early Pokemon days, it was regular old dictionary English. You've got Charmander, the Charring Salamander, because he's a fire type. Trico, the Tree Gecko, you know, that sort of thing. But since then, they got kind of clever by finding ways to integrate slang and internet lingo into seemingly normal puns. So I think the one that's most apparent is, and the one that the internet loved, or well, actually, I'm getting ahead of myself. The one that's most apparent initially um, was Litten, who is a fire-type kitten. So sure, Lit, fire, makes sense. But they also came out with Litten right at the time that Lit as a slang term was really blowing up. And now again, two out of three non-legendaries they revealed in this trailer, they've got these kind of meme-ish, double entendre slang names. Um, Smolliv is a good example. He is a small, olive-looking guy. So that name works on one level, but it also just so happens that the word combo is spelled how the internet loves to spell it, S-M-O-L. So that works out nicely. Or Lechonk. You know, I mentioned it a second ago. The little pig that you could argue is, a, is combining oink with uh, lechon, lechon, which is both Filipino pig dish name and, correct me if I'm wrong, guys, I believe it's Spanish for piglet, right? Uh, I don't know. Okay. Portito? That's what I would call a little a piglet? Or maybe like Spanish a pig. Or... Some it, It's apparently a Spanish word. Lechon, lechon. I don't know. Maybe it's not, but it's a Filipino pig dish at the very least. Um, lechon, yeah, so, isn't lechon milker or something like that? Is it? Yeah, I think you're right. Okay, well, maybe it's just a Filipino pig dish then. But either way, you know, Filipino pig dish, lechon, oink, lechonk, done. But obviously, it just so happens to also have another favorite internet word in there, chonk. When family, he's a, you know, plump little fella. So I do realize that, like, explaining names to this degree sucks a little fun out of them. It makes me sound like this old man. It's like, oh, the kids are so clever. But, like, seriously. Yeah, it does. I know, right? But but seriously, like, look at what Game Freak is cleverly doing here. They found a way to ride current slang trends, modern-day, likely relatively fleeting linguistic trends that are basically memes in of themselves. But because they're doing it, like, in parallel with legitimate naming schemes, these Pokemon aren't going to sound dated in a decade. It's super clever. And it's yeah, I tripped on my words. I say it's super clever in its simplicity of how they're able to like do kind of like two parallel tracks. And if and if you think I'm totally misreading this and just making something up that's like, oh, it's just a coincidence, like it really doesn't matter. I would like to point out a tweet. So let's see here. It's from Friday, uh, June third, so yesterday, at one PM Pacific time. And the official Pokemon account tweeted, and I quote, RT for chonk, like for small. So they absolutely are doing this on purpose as a marketing move. They're not just like meme coincidences. They know, and it works, and it gets the Pokemon, you know, news trending worldwide. It gets the Pokemon trending worldwide. Lechonk was trending. It, gains, it then gains even further exposure for whatever that new Pokemon game in, is, and it's it's a piece of the business savvy puzzle that led Pokemon Company to yet again have a record year of profits in 2021. Apparently, they nearly doubled compared to 2020. They brought in 41 billion yen last year compared to 18 billion the year before. So clearly they're doing, they know what they're doing here with all these levels of marketing and all these decisions and whatnot. And, um, yeah, it's, I feel like they don't get enough credit for manipulating the fan base in such a direct way that works so well every single time. Anyway, now that I've got that out of my system, 
Are there any favorites among the three new, or including the legendaries, among the five new Pokemon they showed? Anyone jump out to you? Um, I said earlier, like nothing. Mm. Like they look fine. I think Small is <laughs> pretty good. Lechonk has the best name, but Small's like I don't know. I like his like kind of scared look. Anything pop out to you, Kevin? Nope. Totally fair. Um, but we did we did kind of talk about um the legendaries a little up top and and their jet butt. Um, are the legendary designs swaying anyone towards one version over another? I know you're thinking not maybe not getting it, Angel, but Kevin, I know you were on the fence about buying it. Are you ignoring Scarlet's font? Does Coradon on the Scarlet Scarlet box or? Miradon or Mir 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 yeah Mirai Rod um, on the Violet Box lead you one way or another. Well, I'm gonna get it anyways because of that bet that we have. Which which that bet? I'm gonna win. What was the bet? I mean, I know we made a bet. I forgot what it was for though. <laughs> I don't remember what the bet was either. But yeah, one of us had to buy the other game, the other the game exactly. Yeah. Well, which one do you want when when the time comes? Scarlet or Violet? Which legendary? Uh, Scarlet. Okay, we're on the same page. Yeah, I, I agree. I will say that there is kind of an interesting through line between the two of the legendaries in that they both seem to have roots in, like, motorcycles or hover bikes or something. Like, their stomachs kind of look like tire treads, and Coradon has what looks like a bike chain, and Muridon or Rod or whatever his name is, Larry, like, the jet engine things we talked about. Um, it seems like kind of a through line through the whole game, actually. There's, like, a lot of people picked up on this in the trailer. It's very in-your-face, but, like, there seems to be two themes everyone's gravitating towards with this game, which is it's set in Spain and things are Spanish, and then there's, like, car-oriented stuff. Like, there's these Pokemon centers or stops or something all over a place that look like gas stations. And there's talk in the trailer of, like, science and technology, which one professor seems to be more aligned with, while also weirdly looking like Kit, formerly of Nintendo Minute. Like Science like... and technology? So, like, Scientology? Uh, no. <laughs> no. That's what Scientology wants you to get duped into, is, oh, science and technology. Scientology must be smart. That's why they picked those those words, but n- no. Um, but yeah, there's, I guess, sure, there's Kit. There's the Kit lookalike who's a Scientologist. And then there's this other professor who, like, lives in... Her background's like a cave, and she literally has a little animal fang, so I guess it's some sort of, like, analog versus digital, or, like, technology versus traditional thing. Like, there, there's something there with that. Um, so that'll be kind of interesting to see what, what that turns into. Cause I feel like, haven't they touched on the like technology taking over the world thing in like black and white or X and Y or something? I feel like that's the uh, theme they've done. X and Y was about genetics. Just some giant. Yeah. Genetics of some giant. Was it black and white? That, weapon? Was it black and white? That was like, cause it was saying black fr- and white. I don't think it was about technology. It was just mm-hmm. about Pokemon rights. Okay. So maybe this is a new thing then. Um, Either way, I'll be interested to see where they where they go with that, especially because they now have two professors unique to each version for the first time. But if I may, I would like to present a theory that goes deeper than just Scarlet and Violet and its technology. Um, it is highly unlikely right. to be true, but it's just enough logic to it that it could maybe borderline actually happen. You guys ready? I think Nintendo's actually gearing up, pun absolutely intended, for Super Smash Kart. Hear me out. Hear me out. Pokemon is seemingly doing stuff with cars now, right? Most notably the designs of the legendaries, like we just said. Maybe they or other Pokemon can transform into cars to help you traverse this open terrain they now have more easily. You know, it'd be a great new in-game gimmick. It opens up new battle options, all the Mega Evolutions or Dynamaxing, etc., etc. But you know who else also recently introduced a car transformation? Kirby. It's one of the main selling points of Forgotten Land, right? Mouthful mode and that signature transformation of Car Kirby are absolutely a thing. Now, 
what other game randomly insert a motorcycle or a motor vehicle, specifically a motorcycle, even though it barely made sense? Legend of Zelda Breath of the Wild. It brought on the uh, Master Cycle. And what game, besides Zelda, has Link riding a motorcycle? Mario Kart 8. Still with me? Good. Okay, now, what two things happened to two of Nintendo's biggest selling multiplayer games? First, there's Super Smash Bros. Ultimate. The final form of what a Smash Bros. game could be, right? Every fighter, every stage, every everything. And we talked about it here on the show. What do you do after that? The series producer Masahiro Sakurai, I believe he himself said in a piece in his Famitsu uh, magazine column, there is no bigger Smash Bros. to achieve. It's gotta be some sort of change. So that's multiplayer thing number one. Multiplayer thing number two is that mere months ago, Nintendo started to essentially wholesale bring over a bunch of retro Mario Kart tracks to Mario Kart 8 as DLC. Now, obviously, this is a play to boost Switch Online subscriptions, as we've discussed before, but the bread and butter of the Mario Kart series is to release new entries with half retro tracks, half new tracks. Would you really give up 32 existing tracks when you only have so many you can keep re-adding in future games as new retro tracks? You would if you didn't care about Mario Kart because the next one is no longer Mario Kart. And you would start giving all your franchises without vehicles a vehicle you can layer reference in a kart racer. Because this isn't Mario Kart. This isn't just slapping a squig kid inkling in a kart with some paint splotches or like a villager in a kart with a leaf on it. No. This would be Super Smash Kart, where you have a franchise obligation to make everything a reference to the original series it came from. You need your car Kirby. You need your Mirrodon with its jet engine butt. You need ones I haven't even mentioned yet, like how Switch Sports has that double-decker bus full of sports mates that can go from venue to venue. That's a wacky vehicle that fits Smash's, you know, unlikely pairing of Nintendo IPs. Or how about Splatoon 3? It has a crab tank now. It's a vehicle you control with your inkling as a special weapon for the first time. The first vehicle to do that. There's another one for this game. And I know you're thinking, but Jason, this amounts, this amount of effort to make this come together is what you expect from like a mapped out MCU phase. Like this is Marvel building towards the adventures, but you're saying they're doing it for a kart racer. To which I say, yes, that's exactly what I'm saying. And that is why this is 99% not actually ever going to happen. It is not actually a thing Nintendo's doing. But what if it was? Like there's just enough of connective like tissue here that I don't know, maybe, could be, wouldn't it be cool? I don't know. I'm just saying. Shoot my shot here. I think, I think we might get a Smash Kart. But not really. But maybe. <laughs> I mean, it would be cool though, right? It feels like it would kind of be the next step for Mario Kart, doesn't it? I mean, isn't that yeah. something that we've been saying forever? Yeah, yeah, but all the pieces are lining up. All the pieces are lining up. Sure. <laughs> yeah, no, this is the most absurd theory I've ever had, but it, it was fun to think about, so I figured I'd I'd share it with you guys when, I, when it came to mind the other day. Um, it would also, let's be honest, be the perfect mic drop for a Nintendo Direct, um, which, by the way, on a more serious note, as of this recording, we still don't know if Nintendo's doing a standard June Direct this month, which is weird. Like, obviously, there's no E3, but there is Summer Game Fest, and while Nintendo isn't choosing to participate under that umbrella, a lot of other major companies still are to a degree. And I feel like Summer Game Fest itself is gaining some serious momentum. I read they're actually doing um, press days in L.A. this week, uh, meaning they're essentially replacing what was the old E3 Judges Week. That was where a small selection of journalists would fly out to try out games before they even made it to the E3 floor as an announcement, like in the weeks leading up to E3. And Jeff Keighley is basically laying down his foundation here as becoming the full-on new E3 going forward. Like, he's replaced Judges. Which he actually, to be fair, he used to run it for E3 back in the day, but... And, like, honestly, I don't, I don't know how exactly you p- 
put the genie back in the bottle at that point. Like, because on the one hand, you've got some companies going all in with Summer Game Fest now, with, you know, at least a big announcement or two. Are they just going to, like, reverse course when E3 comes back? I kind of doubt it. But then on the other hand, a lot of other companies are also just sitting out June entirely. Like Ubisoft, who would presumably have shown more of the Mario and Rabbids sequel, um, Spark of Hope, they told Axios they're instead only going to do a presentation in the fall. And EA Play, with its 0-1 to one Switch games per year, also not happening this year. Um, so it, it kind of just feels like the whole industry is scattered right now while waiting to see what comes in the future. Like, even on just the Nintendo side, like, it's all, it all feels abnormal, like, it, how much is up in the air. Like, the Pokemon Company and Nintendo, you know, they did the Scarlet and Violet news in the exact week they always do to pave way for Nintendo Direct. So traditionally, Pokemon is always the transitional week of that May to June after Memorial Day week. And then two weeks later, on that teen date Tuesday, like the 13th, 14th, 15th, whatever of June, Nintendo would do their full showcase, which this year would be on June 14th, except by now it's normally announced. So I don't I don't know. I mean, are you guys expecting one at this point? A Direct at all? I'm expecting a Direct at some point, but I don't know if I'm expecting it the week of what would have been E3. Do you think they'll do one at, in June at all, or do you think they can afford to wait till the fall, given we know their summer? Yeah, it's Nintendo. They could afford to do it whenever they want. They could do it in September. Yeah, yeah, that's true. Afford maybe wasn't the right word. They can definitely afford it. Yeah, they're doing fine right now. I mean, I would I would like to see one. Um, there's more to show Splatoon 3, I'm sure, Xenoblade as well. We know Bayonetta 3 is still fit, supposedly coming this year, they said in their financials. So haven't seen anything substantial about that in a while. Peek at Breath of the Wild 2 or some surprises would be cool. You know, stuff from 2023, maybe some small releases planned for this year still. Like, you know, there's still B-tier stuff. Nintendo could put out in like October, November. It's usually two releases per month from Nintendo from fall on. So like there's a couple gaps in their lineup. So like I, I could see them doing it and I guess anytime from now till August. It just seems like do they want to be part of this what's left of the industry momentum or do they just not care whatsoever? It's kind of the question. Yeah. 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 I mean d- direct or not. There are some aspects of Nintendo's usual June activities you don't even think about that are going to fall to the wayside without E3, and are already falling to the wayside. I mean, there's no booth they're building, obviously. There's no elaborate set pieces or props they're fabricating. Perhaps more notably, they're not dedicating resources to create special demos for upcoming unreleased games. Like, they don't need to. Who are they showing it to? And it all, all that has, like, kind of an interesting trickle-down effect in that for San Diego Comic-Con, which is back this year, unlike E3, it means Nintendo can't just do what they always do. They can't just bring down the E3 props to decorate their show floor booth in that ballroom they have in the hotel next door. Like instead, and probably also for, I would imagine, COVID health benefits, uh, they're taking their summer demo tour that they traditionally have done and are just adding a San Diego stop across the street from the convention. And it's actually the first time in like three years that they're doing a tour now that pandemic restrictions are lifting, uh, lifting which is nice. Like It's cool that they're back on the road. But there is a difference between Nintendo, you know, these tours that Nintendo does and the typical Comic-Con stuff they do. Like, Comic-Con would see Nintendo take their E3 demos, all this unreleased material, make it accessible to a broader group of the public for the first time, or at least, you know, bigger than the E3 crowd. And the tours, by comparison, focus on games already released. So, like, this year, you know, they're saying this Switch road trip will be Mario Strikers, Kirby and the Forgotten Land, Switch Sports. Those are like the three name drop, like big anchors of it and big anchors of their Comic-Con presence. And because it's kind of a sort of portable booth that they can pack up and hit the road with, like the photo ops, the statues, the set pieces, the elaborate booth lighting, like 
they're not going to exist anywhere near the same level, if at all. So, okay, sure, boo-hoo, we don't get to see a life-size Donkey Kong statue or whatever, but you can't deny that. It's not as exciting of a thing for Nintendo to do a Comic-Con if all they're doing is just being like, here's three games you may already own. Like, it makes total sense to them as a company to go this route with no E3. But for us fans, it's kind of an unfortunate ripple effect of, like, E3 falling to the wayside, even if you don't care about E3 itself. And, like, let's be honest. Like, knowing what we know now, from what I just told you about the tour and what they're doing at Comic-Con, are either of you going to stop at by this so-called, you know, Switch road trip at Comic-Con and play games that are already out? Probably not. Yeah. I mean, unless, like, I'm really desperate for time, especially after the way Nintendo treated us last time we were there, so... Well, that is the upside is yeah. um, I don't think they're going to do that again because these road trips are definitely, like, they go to college campuses and stuff, so, like, they're aimed more at us. But, um, I mean, granted, we're older than college, but they're not aimed at just the kids. Yeah, that was so weird at E3, uh, Comic-Con. What was it, 2019, where we went and they're like, oh, all the prizes are just for children and, like, basically told us to go away. Very weird. Yeah. It made us feel bad about asking for a donut. Oh, that's right, because we had to wait so long to get in. Yep. Yeah, that was so conflicting, actually, because the Treehouse folk came around and gave us donuts, but then we got inside and they're like, you're not welcome here. <laughs> but whatever. Um, but yeah, I mean, Kevin, you, you, how many years have you been going to Comic-Con now? This is like, what, your third? Second? Fourth? Did, did we lose, did we lose Kevin? Maybe, but I'm pretty sure Kevin's only gone like three or four times. I can barely hear Jason. Oh. Uh, oh. You did, but you didn't, you didn't, uh, you didn't lose me. Oh, well, hello. I was just asking how long you've been, to, how many years you've gone to Comic-Con? Just the one. Okay, so this is your second. Oh, so you don't even have a point of reference for Nintendo kind of doing nothing. Nope. Okay. Well, that makes it easier to not care because <laughs> you didn't have something to care about before. Um, am I coming in clearer for you, by the way? Me? Hmm. Strange. It's fine. <laughs> it's okay. like tolerable. I, well, maybe that's the right volume I should be. Um, by the way, while I'm being a Debbie Downer about physical Nintendo things, I'm just going to real quick say I'm also bummed to have learned when Super Nintendo World, you know, I said at the top of the show, it's coming to, uh, it's opening in Hollywood in early 2023. That is new news. Early 2023, it will um, include Mario Kart's Bowser, Mario Kart Bowser's Challenge. That is confirmed. But I also learned it's not going to have the Yoshi's Adventure ride from the Japanese version of the park or the Orlando version of the park. Apparently, the space is too small. So we're only getting one ride. It is not great. I know that ride is an Omnimover and it, Yeah, I see what you're saying, but I want to be fully immersed in the entire Nintendo World experience, and if they're not giving me my slow-moving Omnimover where I just sit on a Yoshi and watch little animatronic Mario enemies go by, you know, I'm missing a chunk of the experience. But yes, it, it would make it more but interesting. But that's like to... being mad that you don't have everything that Disney World has. The difference is Disney World came after land, and Disney World expanded on land but land had the baseline. We're going the opposite way where they made the base one and then they're taking stuff away from the base one for the LA. So the expectations are different. But you're right, it's all based on expectations. Yes, it's not like it's actually that different. Um, Maybe I'm the only one who cares. But Yoshi, I, I feel for you not having a Hollywood home. I do want to clarify real quick. Uh, this isn't just to say, you know, all the stuff about Comic-Con and whatnot. This isn't to say the whole 
Summer Game Fest is a downer because there's no E3. Like, far from it. A lot of companies are still participating with some really cool stuff to show. I'm sure Xbox will do a full E3-scale presentation come June 12th, and Sony just had their stay of play on, what, Thursday? How was that, by the way? Was it? Would you guys consider a good showing? Like, any highlights? For state of play, um, oh yeah, I was pretty excited about this Resident Evil 4 getting a remake because I've bought it Resident Evil 4 on the Wii for like a buck and yeah, never played it beyond like the first 20 minutes for some reason, as godly of a game everyone says it is. Like, I never, re- yeah, and that was after getting into the franchise with Revelations and then the remake of 2 and 3 and 5 and 6. Um, but yeah, looking forward to that. Loving the fact that they're adding VR to Resident Evil 8. My brother and I are super happy that we waited because the game looked like it was designed for VR. Yeah, it did. So it was kind of weird that it wasn't there. So, you know, that worked out. And now it's just a matter of... Uh, I wouldn't say it was for designed that. for VR. <laughs> By that logic, if... every first-person game is designed <laughs> for VR. Well, in a weird way, aren't they kind of? I would say so. <laughs> Maybe I, I want to say they just ran out of time. Just because like, well, Resident it, Evil 7 felt like that was designed for VR. I don't think it's a like time thing because doesn't and Resident then, Evil 8 have an up-res PS5 version? You can't do that if you're only on the original PSVR. I think there is a PS5 version. I don't remember. Yeah, so it's but not a time, it's not a time thing. It's a technology constraint thing, I would say. And They couldn't wait for Sony to make the second VR headset, basically. Is my guess. Uh huh. But either way, super cool that that's happening as well. But yeah, actually happy for both of those things, and not to mention Street Fighter Six. Just okay, that looks cool. It looks yeah, really, that looks cool. Looks really cool. Looks like it has an identity for itself instead of whatever Street Fighter Five was supposed to be. And yeah, just can't wait to play that. Hopefully, actually learn how to play it and get into it. But I mean, we will see. You know what's interesting about Street Fighter 6? Well, three things. One, they fixed the logo from using a stock image, so props to them. Two, uh, they're introducing um, like an open-world walk-around deal, Leo thing, which kind of, I feel like it's just going to be single-player, like, go to this dojo, now go over here to fight. And it's just going to be really like light, but it kind of feels like a throwback to when Street Fighter was a side-scoring beat-em-up, and he just walked around a city and hit people. <laughs> like, it kind of reminds me of that. But um, the third thing I was going to say is actually kind of interesting is they are introducing a new control mechanic to make Street Fighter more accessible. I saw someone tweet about this. It involves one button and hitting a stick in a certain direction. Sound familiar? They're giving a Smash Bros. option, essentially. Which makes yeah, sense. Capcom has slowly been um, implementing that in a lot of their games lately. Like, I know Marvel's Capcom. Like, they, they pretty much call it simple mode. Mm-hmm. And even non-Capcom games like Dragon Ball Fighters, you could do a whole combo just by pressing one button. And this one lets you do that as well. And they'd even have some combos that lead into your ultras. But you are missing out. But you don't get full control of your character. You pretty much get one light attack, medium attack, and one heavy attack. And... Those are like basically pre-picked to suit, I guess, their combo needs. I think the first game to do that in recent memory, recent history, whatever you want to call it, was Persona 4 Arena. Because that's why Fighters has it. That's why all of Arc System Works games have it now. Oh, that's interesting. 
Yeah, I figured. Right. I mean, it makes sense when you see this behemoth of Smash Bros come through and kind of bring in this player base that isn't as fighter game savvy, and then go on to be the best selling fighter game. Like, even if you want to do your own thing and have your own systems and whatnot, like offering kind of that bridge makes a certain amount of sense. Like, it reminds me a lot. Yeah. It, it's like it's a, a cool retroactive. Yeah, it's like and how they Nintendo. Deeper, they have the option. It's like how Nintendo did that thing with the Wii where they made, like, super simple games and then they slowly started making the games a little more advanced so they could, like, ease in the new people who came into, like, I don't know, New Super Mario Bros. as their first Mario or whatever. They could, like, ease them back into more, like, serious games or how, like, Wii Sports became Wii Sports Resort and got, like, a little deeper. Like, it feels like it, they're trying to build those similar bridges. It's smart. It's really smart of Capcom to do, I think. And, I guess, uh, the Grand Blue guys and all that. But, yeah, were there any highlights in the state of play that caught your eye, Kevin? Final Fantasy 16, baby. I need to say it. Oh my god, <laughs> that was so that cool. was a trailer. Yeah. When's it due? When's it supposed to come out? I believe the trailer said summer 2023. That's actually kind of interesting about Stay at Play. I'm I'm wondering if that's why maybe Nintendo might not do a direct. Is everything they have to announce? It has to be next year. Like Sony is just like fine. A bunch of our stuff will be 2023. We'll announce a smattering of, like, third-party things and, like, PC ports for 2022. But I feel like Nintendo, when they do these presentations, are like, no, we need to focus on this year. And that might be actually what holds back a Direct, is we know most of it. So it, it, it's kind of interesting to just see the two different ways they approach their presentation. It's very, like, Sony's very forward-looking with theirs at this point. But is, is so is, is 16, like... More actiony. It looked actiony from what I saw. I mean, it's still an RPG, obviously, but it looked like it was like an action RPG versus like a turn based. Are they continuing down that road? I mean, we're oh, excuse me, we're never going to get a another main turn based mainline Final Fantasy game ever at this point. I guess it's just more Whatever. dynamic when it's there's pl- there's there's plenty of games that can fill that turn based hole. That is true. Persona. Yeah. Oh, but you also mentioned uh, PC ports. I forgot that they also announced Spider-Man for the PC. So mm-hmm. can't wait to give that a third go around. And they did that thing that every company well, does where they announce one thing in their presentation. And then like 20 minutes after the presentation, they're like, oh, by the way. So it's not just Spider-Man on PC. Miles Morales will be hitting um, a few months later as well. Yeah. Yeah. So can't wait to get back into those. I love those games. Do you think I finally play them? I don't have a PC. Yeah, no, I can't. <laughs> I, I guess yeah, I could play it on my like, work PC. You, you, that doesn't have I could have sworn you said that you would buy a PC just for Miles Morales and Spider-Man. I don't think I've ever said those words in my life, in that sequence. I've definitely said the word PC, Miles Morales, and Spider-Man, but not in that sentence, not in that order. I think I have a recorder somewhere. I'll All right, if it. you can dig up evidence I said that, sure. Um, But yeah, so I feel like, just more broadly though, like, Stay at Play is a good example that, like, there are still cool things happening in June. Like I, that was probably the strongest day of play Sony's done. And I'm sure Xbox will, you know, be right up there. Um, but I guess my my main point is that instead of the entire industry firing on all cylinders, we're getting like a quieter, ish kind of weirder June where maybe if you're not a platform holder, you've only got like a game or two to show. And among those games, watch this transition, guys. Among those games, there's at least one that's been catching people's attention for seemingly all the wrong reasons. And of course, it's one of the few that was. That's also coming to Switch. Sonic Frontiers. Um, I mean, I guess congrats to Sega for finally breaking the Sonic cycle. They just kind of did it in the wrong direction. 
But um, who who among us has seen the footage of this new open world Breath of the Wild Horizon Xenoblade looking Sonic game? Ooh, have you... ooh, ooh, I have, I have, I have. <laughs> um, Angel, did you? You did, right? Yeah. Okay. So for those who haven't, um, we'll link to two videos of raw gameplay that IGN published exclusively. One is exploration based. The other is combat based. What'd you two make of it? Uh, it looked fine. Um, it look it really reminded me of like a miss opportunity art wise to do something more like, I mean, because they're going in this direction, that you know they have a giant sandbox. It looks like you're just running around what looks like Hyrule Field, just more, uh, I guess, with a more realistic direction. We'll just call it that. Yeah, and you just have Sonic esque obstacles all over the place with uh no real direction of like what where you're supposed to go you just kind of do what you want and there's some paths that looks like you could take that kind of loop back around back to the main island but yeah there's a fan made project i don't remember its name but pretty much it's the exact same thing but with um you know with the sonic style that i feel sonic direction that i feel you would normally take and that obviously has a lot of improvements needed on it as well but I feel like that captured what this is trying to do a little better. At least like going a lot faster as well. But yeah. It doesn't look bad, but it looks half baked. I, yeah. I don't I don't I don't know what to expect of it. It's weird. Yeah, I mean Ken, what do you think of it? I mean, you kinda hit the nail on the head. It it feels half baked. Literally nothing about that trailer excited me yeah. in the slightest. Sonic's model looks really really bad um the the open world looks even blander than breath of the wilds which jesus i didn't know how you managed to do that <laughs> then the combat oh my god that looks so boring it's so like repetitive yeah and it takes so many hits it's like yeah it's like sonic already doesn't need I mean, Sonic doesn't need combat, and the combat that there is in any Sonic game is just a homing attack. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it's a homing attack. It's not supposed to be... It... I don't know what they're trying to accomplish with this, besides chasing that uh, Breath of Wild money. Yeah. Not only that, but, like, the music The music is is very beautiful, but does not suit Sonic at, at all. Agreed. It's very serene, like... yeah. Dude, give me Crush 40. Like, Also, that's... you know what was weird is they do the battle and they're playing that serene, soft piano music. And then the battle starts and the music continues to be serene and soft. Like, Breath of the Wild had that piano and music that fair, they're clearly cribbing, but it ramped part up. Of the trailer? I, well, that it's not a trailer. The that's trailer? the thing. It was just supposed to be like 8 to 10 minutes of like raw gameplay, I thought. Which makes it more confusing. Yeah. yeah. Uh, no, you know what? I... The the scenes do transition in that, and the music doesn't doesn't change. So, oh, so maybe I'm gonna it assume overlaid. it's part of the trailer. Okay, yeah. I, I so do... maybe there is battle music. Hopefully, but then <laughs> it goes from like it goes from Sonic like... has battle music. What like it goes from serene go piano. Route, right? It's just so it's just an odd game. I don't understand. Yeah, I just imagine it going from then... like serene piano to like suddenly like electric guitar, and then back to serene piano, like to add a wind. Like it's it's gotta be weird. Yeah, exactly. And then the gameplay, when they show that 
I'm assuming what is supposed to be a boss fight with that giant mechanical creature. Yeah, the the, the giant to- topsy, the giant hat looking yeah, thing. Yeah, and yeah. The physics on it looks super odd, like Sonic falling off of it. It just oh, the face plant. Yeah, yeah. They just it's in development, and they have what six months to go, something like that. They've got to really, really clean that up in six months because I'm not impressed by what they're showing. Yeah. It seemed like a neat idea, but it's just, like you said, it's just a half-baked at this point, honestly. I I feel like the way they're just sort of showing us random stuff without context also isn't helping and kind of sums up the problem with the game. Like, it's just leaving me asking why over and over. Like, why is what we're watching happening? Why are these decisions being made? Like, it's... It's obviously an argument you can make for any game, but I just don't see, like, connecting threads here for why, like, this type of open-world game makes sense for Sonic, which is kind of what you were saying, right? Like, why put a guy all about speed and attitude in, like, this somber, relatively slow-feeling setting? Why take away any sense of dynamicness or intensity? Like, why add objects to the world designed to help him build that momentum? It has no identity, yeah. It feels like, you know what it feels like? It feels like that, like, you know those fan-made, like, it's Mario, but in Unreal Engine 4. Like, it feels like that. Yes, exactly. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. And there's some neat, there's some interesting things in there. Like, I think, like, the object, like, the the idea of, like, this 3D playground, which is what Angel is kind of touching on, like, it could be, if it's done right, like, there are building blocks in these, in these videos of, you know, that there are ideas that, like, I think have potential in ways that when we talked about the leak synopsis a year ago, which pointed exactly to this, um, like there are ways that there are things they did in this. I'm like, okay, maybe like they do have objects in the world designed to help them like build up momentum. If they didn't have them just abruptly end and he just comes to a near halt right after he's on them, there's maybe something there. Um, but like, I don't know. It's, it's really weird. I think if they like made it more colorful, if they like made it Sonic, like if they made the personality of this thing that match what makes Sonic Sonic, color energy sound design momentum sure there's actually something maybe there but like the fact that they did i'm just like but why that has been shown off yeah and and i think all the whys of like why is it like this it just like it ties back to the issue of how they're presenting the game itself too because they're not explaining anything like if they had reason for this that they could verbalize or if they like like when breath of the wild was first shown in any real way you know, we got a walkthrough of how climbing works. We got a walkthrough of how cooking works. We understood the stealth elements. You you know, you name it. Nintendo made a point of, like, at different times, introducing the mechanics and their purpose and why you should care. The game wasn't done, but they made a point to, like, walk you through everything. Sonic, like, the lack of clarity is just making it more confounding and feeling even more half-baked to me. Like, we just need them to answer why to any of it. It would help at least a little. But the fact that they're not even doing that, and it's like, oh, it speaks for itself. I'm like, it really doesn't. I mean, I guess in a way it does. But it really doesn't tell us anything about what your like intention is here. So I think that also is hurting it, just the way they're rolling out this information. It's just it's just a mess. But I, I do like the idea of, like, do you guys remember in Rush 2 on the N64? I don't know if you ever played it. There's really fun stunt mode. And, they, and it was recreated by an indie dev on Switch, and I talked about it a couple of years ago, called Wrecked, R-E-K-T. And basically, you just drive around through, like, half pipes and ramps and tubes and things, and you do flips and stuff. I feel like if you wanted to do this kind of open-world Sonic, make it colorful, make it bright, do it that sort of way where you're just running around this big environment that's just full of random things, and, you know, make it, like, Tony Hawk's Pro Sonic or something. Like, you earn points, you know, you rack stuff up. Like, that could be a kind of interesting open... Sonic, and they kind of did that with Sonic Riders, but it was more of a racer. But, like, explore that a little more. Don't go become Breath of the Wild in Horizon. Like, I don't know what they're... Can you imagine if Mario, like, popped up in, like, 
like a game that looked like the next Dragon Age or something. Like, why? Why would you do that? Like, I mean, it doesn't make sense. Level Odyssey kind of does that. But... Yeah, but it still had the mechanics of Mario. I'm talking about like if they were like, well, we'll just have Mario jump through a level that has nothing to do with Mario. <laughs> like it, like that that doesn't have any of the like mechanism. You know what I mean? Like, because Mario Odyssey, what I thought did really well is they put him in weird environments, but the environments are just skinned takes on core Mario gameplay. Sonic looks like they put him in an environment that is literally that environment, not like a Sonicified version. So, I am. But yeah, it's just just why why. Um, but who knows? Six months they could change things. Maybe they'll delay it again. If if, if I were them, I'd push it to twenty twenty three. Apparently, it's been in development for five years, which is insane to me. Um, oh, that's not a good showing for five years. <laughs> at least that's what I read somewhere. I don't know how true that is. There's also quotes from developers saying they're hoping this game get there. They're like four and a half of those years were literally storyboarded. Yeah, like we only have we only had, we only had six months six of months, but we worked actually. on it, quote unquote, for five years. Uh, there's also quotes flying around from Sonic Team that like they they're shooting for this game to get good reviews, and it's just like, oh, guys, 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 guys. If that's the case, I mean that that should that should be the case for every game that yeah you, you would think yeah. What's that mean about like Sonic and Leash? Where they're like, oh, this one could be bad. It's okay, but um, unlike unlike that one, yeah, unlike yeah. that one, which we knew sucked. Let me tell you about this one. Which we hope <laughs> we're, the we're actually putting we're actually putting some effort into this one. Yeah, yeah, and and also like so weird. It's so weird, and also like of all times for them to do this, Sonic has so much no point in time, so much momentum right now because of the movie. He is bigger in the in pop culture and he's been in a long time. And this is what they greet it with. I mean, smartly they have Sonic Origins coming out in like three weeks, and that that's a good sort of like, hey, remember Sonic? Look, guys, he's cool again. Like that's a good little collection for that purpose, but. I feel like this is not capturing the spirit of everything that blew Sonic back up. So, I don't know. We'll see. Just a lot wise. Um, actually, that that brings me another another good transition coming on. Not really. We're asking a lot wise about Sonic, right? And Sonic Frontiers with no real answers. Well, 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 well. This transition is my part, as I say it. What if I told you that there's a book full of answers to the many whys we've been asking for the past 14 years about something else? Nintendo's business is. That was awful. My God, that was a bad transition. Anyway, yeah, that's right. There uh, that awkward, is? Yeah, that awkward word flip I just did is me heading into what uh, I have as a last topic for the show, which is former Nintendo of America president Reggie Fizeme's new book, Disrupting the Game from the Bronx to the Top of Nintendo. And I don't know why I'm saying it like that. But uh, before I begin, I, I am pretty sure I'm the only one who actually bought the book, let alone read it. Is that correct? Some of you would assume that, but yeah, that is correct. That's why I'd assume it. Uh, okay, well, I mean, I guess that checks out. I, I'm I'm the biggest nerd among us when it comes to Nintendo's like inside baseball and business happenings. I just hit my microphone. Whoops. But uh, yeah, in fact, I actually read the entire book in one sitting. That's how much of a nerd I am about these things. Um, I I think I, I do seem to have a problem with doing things in one sitting lately. I watched all Stranger Things season four, volume one in one go, which was like nine straight hours. Uh, I watched Top Gun 1 and 2 for the first time back-to-back with, like, only an hour break between them. What I'm saying is I need help, and I need someone to break up my day for me. But in terms of Reggie's book, uh, I just want to share a few thoughts about it, given that he's someone I admire. More notably, he's been such a fixture of our podcast for so many years. Um, Admittedly, we've already talked about some stuff he said in the media and touched on in the book in our past few episodes. You know, his dislike of the Game Boy Micro, for example. But I had to wait for my signed copy to arrive and once it did only then was I able to actually read and digest the whole 200 pages roughly half of which are actually about Nintendo the book is ultimately a business memoir about Reggie's 
past successes and failures, and the lessons that you, yes, you, the reader, can learn from them. Um, so it it opens with an anecdote of Saturawada's uh, passing before it then rewinds all the way back to Reggie's family history and kind of works its way back towards him joining Nintendo in 2004 and eventually his retirement in 2019 and what he's now up to. Um, obviously, as a Nintendo fan, it's that turning point into Nintendo where things really get interesting. But Reggie does keep the book relatively light and breezy overall. So really everything from the start of his career at Procter Gamble onward kept me engaged. Um, in fact, there's a it, it's kind of cool because you're reading it and there's like a loose thread here and there that suddenly ties back to Nintendo when you least expect it. Like he uh, he mentioned when he joined VH1, his original plan was to add games to their website as a way to help keep people on the site. He joined right at the time where like websites were just like the listings for the channel and he saw an opportunity to bring in a different audience if he made the site more of a destination. That didn't happen because 9-11 changed all the company's plans, but he did initially work with a studio on those games called, wait for it, Vicarious Visions. So all that time that Nintendo was co-promoting Guitar Hero and Vicarious Visions was like the de facto third-party like Activision studio that would do all these exclusive Nintendo experiences, Reggie was working with old friends. Like the same guys that were running Vicarious Visions when he was trying to get them to do VH1 web games became the guys who were doing all this Nintendo stuff. So it's kind of interesting to see like, you know, those connections pre-Nintendo becoming such a big part of the Nintendo story. And all those anecdotes, Nintendo and not, are strung together throughout the book with his uh, business advice. Like, it's all through the lens of, you know, what you can learn from it. That's what determines which stories he's telling and why. So each story has a box called the so what uh, that basically explains, you know, the lesson of the story. Like, why, if a success becomes a failure, you need to be open to changing your plans, or if your own boss decides to change plans, like you need to do what's best for you, even if that means leaving the company, you know, things like that, like little like key takeaways to help you through the corporate world or whatever. And through those... Uh, Any juicy gossip, like, oh, Bill Trident actually, like, he only eats the chocolate chips off of chocolate chip cookies and then, like, leaves the rest there. Uh, nothing about Bill Trident. I mean, he did, that's the thing. Through these um, stories, he does actually tell some like little nuggets about interactions with Iwata and with Miyamoto and things like that. And, and it's interesting because he, in some of the stories are a little juicier than others, but he does try to strike a balance between like bragging about great achievements he's done and the team has done and admitting mistakes he's made. And it, it's interesting because you would hope there'd be a little more juice on the mistakes, but it's a book by the man himself. Right. So he immediately is skewing things a little in his favor. Like he highlights the Bigfoot pizza, pizza hut. Um, which was a huge success initially, but ultimately needed to be canceled due to its ingredients being of lesser quality in order to Love make that it pizza. that success. Yeah, so he basically and framed it as like, this pizza was amazing. It saved the company. Like the West Coast chains that were suffering did super well. We only had to stop it because people started to notice we changed the ingredients. And it's like, okay. He's like, so I, and then his like takeaway is like, sometimes things that are successes aren't in the end. And I'm like, all right, but like 80% of what you just said was you bragging about how successful the Bigfoot pizza was. And they're like, but like also, <laughs> so yeah. And, or like, you know, the Wii U failure, if we want to do more Nintendo juice, uh, the Wii U failure, you know, he frames it as it teed up the potential for the Switch success without, you know, without like we had these issues with the Wii U, but we had all these great learnings of how we do the Switch. But he didn't really touch on what went wrong with the Wii U. He never, like, addressed the marketing snafu of the confusing name. He only in really? passing huh. mentioned – he in passing mentioned that when they first revealed the console, people initially thought it was a controller for the Wii at E3 2011. And they said they worked to redo the marketing to explain it better. I don't know if they succeeded in that marketing. But he kind of was like, yeah, like, it. we fumbled the initial launch. We then said – you know, we then made it clearer. It then just didn't sell great. 
Anyway, it made the switch. Isn't that nice? And it's like, uh, well, hold on. You glossed over a huge chunk. And, you know, when like the 3DS, for example, um, you know, he talked about that he thought the price needed to be lower. Japan insisted it be higher. Uh, he wanted 199 Japan was like, well, due to the margins, we could do like 219 229 He's like, no, no, no. At that point, the mindset of American consumer was 199 or 249 Like people thinking like 60 – like saying, hey, here's a 229 system. It's a little weird for retailers and consumers. So they were like, okay, then we have to do 250 And he was like, I gunned for 199 They didn't do it. And then lo and behold, we dropped it to 169 And I'm like, wait, but you're just saying you have to do it in $50 chunks and now it's 169 Something's – like I'm not saying he's being an unreliable narrator. I'm just saying like – there are some moments where you could tell he's like, no, 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 I got this. Um, it wasn't me. I got this. But but then on the flip side, there are certainly more humble moments too. Um, one that stuck with me is actually advice he received from Iwata, which fittingly describes exactly what I was just describing. He Iwata told him to be less brash and listen to people around him more. And he said that in the book, that he he got that advice. And and honestly, it's like those little nuggets, like of his time with Iwata, that really are perhaps how the strongest part of the book parts of the book. Um it, it they make a very good companion piece if for anyone who's read the Ask Iwata book that came out this time a year ago, but um but but seriously it's probably the most insightful behind the curtain peek of not just their relationship but the dynamic of how Nintendo was run at the time because like you know funny enough like most of the stories in this book are actually about the conflicts the times they clashed the times things didn't you know why things happened how they did. Like whether, you know, why um, the debate about whether Wii Sports should be a pack-in with the Wii. Um, you know, that sort of thing. Like it's really like that's where you see like, oh, the inner work is Nintendo. And Reggie then dedicates a portion of the uh, epilogue to really gush about how much I want to meant him as a colleague, a mentor, and a friend. And it's just kind of – it's interesting to see like all these different pieces of their relationship and how it came together. And especially that epilogue, it's all – it's very touching. And it, it really – like given how Nintendo made itself so personable and personality-driven – um, in the Reggie and Iwata era, like how it felt like this small company you have this close connection to, you know, you get, you're getting to hear these anecdotes and learn more about their dynamic as as well as Reggie's dynamic with Miyamoto, even if it's brief in the book, like it's just really nice and oddly kind of nostalgic. Like that's actually the best word to describe the book, I think is nostalgic. Cause like, honestly, the current Nintendo of like the 2020s is not the same Nintendo of the decade prior. The The super personable trifecta of Iwata, Reggie, and Miyamoto. Like, that doesn't really exist anymore. You know, Nintendo employees making FaceTime, be it in Directs or through things like Kit and Krista and Nintendo Minute, that's been reduced to basically non-existent now. Like, Nintendo Directs are, you know, these slick affairs with mostly a voiceover of a random guy, not a Nintendo exec who's excited to tell you, like, you personally about what his teams are working on while, you know, maybe he's pretending to be a robot that shoots lasers from his eyes or something weird like that. Like, it's all... It's all more sterile now, right? And uh, it's a little more corporate, and that's fine. Everything changes over time. Companies and people go through eras and phases. But what I enjoyed about the book is that it took me back to that era, to those people, even to the events themselves, that shaped that kind of more personal Nintendo. You know, Reggie talks about the Wii's reveal at, 2000, at uh, E3 2006 and some of the behind-the-scenes stories about it, like how, here's an interesting one, the Blue Ocean strategy um, they, you know how they used to always preach, oh, the blue ocean strategy informed our decision to make the DS and Wii. We needed to, the red ocean was flowing. We needed to find new people, new audience. Um, they, they build it as the inspiration for the products and all their marketing about the products. Turns out they only picked that business book after they already had the products to help better explain the products. So this whole thing, like we were inspired by the blue ocean was actually the other way around. They were inspired by what they did to figure out that something called the blue ocean would make sense to convey it to the public. 
And just hearing stuff like that, like it's small, but it's kind of neat just to hear those stories and hearing him evoke Nintendo memories that, you know, I got to be part of and are such important memories and moments in my life. Like that's, that was cool to like kind of see like the other side of that. Um, so yeah, if you're a big Nintendo fan who likes the business side of the company, if you're a fan who spent a lot of time following that era of Nintendo, I really do think you'll enjoy Reggie's book. I, I certainly did. Um, so yeah, that, that, that's disrupting it. Any questions from the class about disrupting the game? Um, so after having read it, did you really feel like he disrupted the game? I think what he did extremely well is he came into Nintendo and he, yeah, I don't know if disrupted or he pivoted the company. They, from everything that book implies, they were stuck in their old ways. They're kind of in a rut. You know, <laughs> Which was were... called that pivoting the company. Pivoting the company. No, but they were stuck in their old ways. They um clearly were like at a turning point where the Wii and DS were going to be things and they needed someone to come in with new ideas. Even stuff with like how they would allocate hardware to retailers. It used to be based on um past sales percentages. So like Target, oh, you get 30% of our sales? Well, here's 30% of our systems. Reggie implemented something where if the retailer would promise upfront promotional costs on their own outside of Nintendo or something along those lines, they would get more allocated units. So he was like even little things like that, like getting the stores to more aggressively push Nintendo products over other systems with stuff that like Nintendo never touched. And he was like, nah, 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 we need to do that. And like all these little, like little things about like how corporate communication worked within the company, how how, you know, NOA interacted with Nintendo Japan, like uh, all of that, like you could tell he did shake some stuff up. So yeah, I would say he disrupted the Nintendo game. And his whole thing is he considers himself a disruptor. So a lot of the stories throughout the book are like, oh, I did this thing that they never thought of, or I did this thing in a way they never did before. And, and, and you know, the Bigfoot pizza is supposed to be an example. Well, what if we, you know, we need a match little Caesars, so what if we just do a big pizza. Like, the company was thinking at the time, well, we need to emphasize lunch. We're Pizza Hut. We're under the red roof. Everyone comes in for lunch. He's like, well, no, because a lot of people like delivery. That's why Little Caesars works. And a lot of people are going to Pizza Hut's are delivery only. So doing a lunch promotion doesn't work for those. So what if we think differently and do this kind of Little Caesars-style value pizza? And then that worked for a period of time. So, like, he did, he does, to his credit, disrupt some thinking, some, like, comfort levels at company let's say like what they're comfortable with he'll try and push them past that and he did that with nintendo for sure um even stuff like launching the ds in america first that's the first time nintendo ever launched a system in the u.s first but they did it to sync up with black friday they did it because um the you know the games were kind of a little more western and push worked wonders so he did he did change some stuff for sure so yes he disrupted the game if you will all right. No yeah. need to uh, read the book now. Yeah, there you go. Spoilers. You know the ending. Yep. Well, <laughs> <laughs> but yeah. Um, and then, you know, this actually is a good way to pivot a little into our big round Nintendo announcement because um, our final, final thing this episode, because for the vast majority of the show's existence, there was Reggie. There was Iwata. There was, and admittedly still is, Miyamoto. Uh, but that whole personality era, uh, like personality-driven era of Nintendo uh, that I was talking about that this book kind of like, had me like nostalgically pining for like that rose and fell in the time we've been podcasting. And, and I think like, let's be honest, our lives have changed too in that time, right? Like we changed jobs, we gained new interests, we moved, our families grew, we collectively went through a pandemic. I got three cats, you know, never mind that Ram Nintendo itself went from one bi-weekly show about just Nintendo to two shows, one about Nintendo and a second show about everything, not Nintendo. 
and that second show somehow went through two names already. Like, a lot has happened. The point is, things change, things grow. It's happened to Nintendo, it's happened to us as people. And what I'm building towards here is that now it's time for that to happen to random Nintendo. Um, next episode of the Random Nintendo podcast, as you two know, but no one out there yet knows, uh, will be the last episode of the show as you guys out there and we here have known it for over a decade now. We're not going away. We've, we still care about Nintendo. We still plan to talk about Nintendo. But as the world's return, returning to like some semblance of normalcy and our lives have shifted a bit, the collective decision was made that we can't sustain a random Nintendo and a random Nintendo, even though we still want to talk about the things offered in both. So instead, we're going to combine them. Kind of makes sense, right? So what that'll specifically look like, what it'll be called, we're keeping that close to the chest for now. But before I go any further, were there any thoughts you two might have wanted to add to this idea of this kind of new hybrid show, if you will? Um... Nothing much outside of, like, you know, it's just better for us as individuals, given, like Jason said, like, just current life things. And, you know, this way, um, you know, as much as I love to listen to Jason talk about Nintendo, you do have to admit <laughs> that the last like, couple years, it's mainly been Jason talking. Which, you know, it's great enough, but, you know, at least this way, there's a, a little more variety in every single episode. Not that that is necessarily a bad thing, but, you know. And again, there's still stuff we're all going to collectively talk about with Nintendo. I mean, like, you know, Mario Strikers demo, for example, is something that would come up in any format of the show. Yeah, so, yeah, we're still covering Nintendo for those who are looking for that. Um, Kevin, anything you want to throw in? No, I think you hit the nail on the head. Okay, well, what I can say at this point, then, is to everyone listening, you won't need to subscribe to anything new. You won't need to adjust any of your sayings on your favorite podcast app. You'll still find us on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Titcher, uh, Titcher, Stitcher, TuneIn, iHeartRadio, Amazon Music. We're on our YouTube channel, Ramtown.com, and we're not going anywhere there. You'll still be able to follow us on Twitter at RamNintendo. We'll individually still be on Twitter, too. I'm DSR7. Angel is Wero, W-E-I-R-O underscore O. Kevin is KV and Gomi. None of that's changing. Everything else will be revealed in our next and last, as we know it, Ram Nintendo podcast episode on June 19th. If Nintendo does us a solid and hosts uh, that direct of theirs on that traditional Tuesday right before, it should make for quite a bang to go out with. But either way, we'll be sending off in style. And again, to reiterate, we're not actually going anywhere. We're just evolving, changing, morphing, whatever word you prefer to use. Uh, and, and to be clear, we really couldn't do that or have done any of this without all of you out there. So thank you for listening. We'll see you in two weeks' time for one last Random Nintendo podcast. Hurrah. And as is tradition for this show anyway, Kevin, final word? Pokemon Company, fix your logos. <laughs> <laughs>